All right, so I want to throw a little bit of a curveball question at you. Well, uh, we're going to talk a lot about Taiwan today. And, um, you know, we all know Speaker Pelosi went. She, you know, she, she stood her ground and she ignored China's saber rattling, essentially. She went to Taiwan. We all know about the, the military exercises that followed. Um, is that it? I mean, is, the, it, is there going to be more from China in retaliation for that visit? Or are we all supposed to forget about it and move on? Look, there could be, and I think there are completely different reasons that so far we haven't spoken about, and maybe we should, is that the Chinese economy is in tatters. And let's not forget, this is a dictatorship, just like Russia, and has to rely on some form of legitimacy. So far, unlike Russia, uh, the economic side of things kind of ticked on for, for China for two and a half decades. This really is petering up right now. So... Usually dictatorships to find another leg to stand on. There's nothing better than chauvinism. So distracting people, you know, and really that means a lot of young people. Youth unemployment in China is currently 20%. 20%. That's extremely hard. It's never happened before. So there's a lot of uh, efforts to hire these people into the public sector, into the government administration and so on. Of course, they're not going to earn as much as they hoped after awesome. years of studies. Uh, but at least it's a joke. Um, how do you distract people from a collapse of the real estate market? You know, so far, every time in China, we observed a, a, a credit crunch and collapse of activity. The thing that the uh, central bank did, PBOC, was basically ramping up credit, right? And how do you do it? With real estate. Well, they're not going to do it anymore because real estate is really one area or Xi Jinping made a major mistake. First, there are mistakes made over years by basically kicking this can down the road. And then in the glory of vanquishing COVID in 2020, um, he was so conceited about his, his great victory over COVID that he decided to run a couple of reforms, including the so-called red lines for um, real estate developers. A lot of them collapsed. I'll give you an example. Evergrande, which is the larger real estate developer, though you might not really hear about much. It's still standing. It still exists. And its bonds are selling at 150%. Find me someone who's able to pay back debt that carries a yield of 150%. It's not going to yeah. happen. So, so it's a very, very serious matter. It's, of course leads to uh, that mortgage strike, which I think we re referred to a couple of weeks ago. And that might mean that the real estate crisis is gonna spread into the banking system, which is a you know potential catastrophe. So all of this happening just, what is this, two and a half months ahead of the National People's Congress? Not so good for Xi Jinping. Of course, he can control information about it. He can shut down all the information flow, uh, but you need to distract people and of course, there's nothing better than nationalism. Just think, for those who know Russian history better, think about Crimean War, right? Back in the 19th century. Think about all those uh, attempts to distract the populace and, and give them some circuses, some circus, uh, rather than panem, bread. Uh, and there's nothing better than circuses outside of the borders because, of course, the tiny, tiny Russia and the tiny, tiny China need more territory than everybody. And their glory of empty fridge will be very happy about it.
So yes, we might see some further saber rattling from China. So it's it, part of what I think you're saying though is, <clears throat> excuse me, if we see more reaction from China, it's actually not about Nancy Pelosi at all. She's just a convenient tool to use to create a distraction. If she hadn't gone to Taiwan, they would have found something else. Absolutely. So it's not really about Nancy Pelosi at all. I mean, this, this is an argument that some people kind of latch on. Oh my God, what did she do? And so there would have always been some other excuse to, to, to launch that sort of distraction. I am, uh, uh, the reason I look a little distracted on the screen is I'm taking a, a link to an article that you sent me and I'm going to put it in the chat box as we're talking here. So forgive me as I multitask. Um, so while we're talking about Taiwan, and I will put that link in as soon as I can, while we're talking about um, Taiwan, will you talk about why, for instance, when Nancy Pelosi was making this trip in the lead up and while she was there and even afterwards, some pundits would say things like, Taiwan is not a state. What What is the rationale for that? And and how do you counter that? Why is why is Taiwan a state? Why is it completely incorrect to suggest otherwise? Yeah. So, a state or a country, right? What is yes. what is the country? You have to actually step back and define. In most countries around the world these days, so the idea that started with the Westphalian uh, peace in Europe in 1648 after the Thirty Year War, religious war, is that there are states with defined borders, right? And um, most states are nation states. So the state kind of uh, relates to a specific group that we call a nation. So we have to define both the state and the nation separately. And by the way, not every state is a nation state. There are a lot of states that incorporate many nations, not least the empires, such as Russia and China, right? In Russia, you have Tatars, you have Chechens, you have uh, Yakuts, you have Buryats, you have you know, Tuvans and Bashkirs and, and, and so on. And in China, you have Mongols and Tibetans and, um, and Uyghurs, of course, and Kazakhs and a lot of people, different people in Yunnan. By the way, probably the nicest place to visit in communist China, at least back in the day, was Yunnan, you know, in these mountains. Because these are former uh, kingdoms, such as Dali Kingdom. They're all own languages, own traditions, people such as Nashi people or, or Dai people or Mai people. Um, some of whom, just like the Burmese, actually many, many centuries ago moved from the north. So you see it in their dances, you see it in their tradition that's more Altaic, that's more similar to what you see from our, you know, First Nations here in North America rather than yeah. Northeast Asia. But anyway, so multiple nations and even smaller states, smaller by uh, size, may have multiple nations. If one of the potential definitions of nation is language, then Nigeria has 500 languages. Papua New Guinea has 850. So languages? Languages, yes. That's what happens when you have a lot of mountains and not many roads. Separation. People end up speaking different things. You know, thanks Switzerland, right? So they, so you might have, but you know, so even if I've stayed in multiple nations, we still have to define what a nation is. A nation usually is a group um, where everybody agrees that we kind of belong to a certain entity, right? It doesn't really have to be linguistics, but language, of mm-hmm. course, helps. Sometimes it's multilingual and yet 
still a nation by the definition in first person plural of the people who define themselves this way. So in Taiwanese case, it's very interesting because today. Now, just before, before you go on about Taiwan, I just, I want to ask a question about what you just said. In some cases, people are part of a nation, even if they don't want to be. Yeah. And that's the case of a lot of those empires, right? Yes. Basically are, you know, stateless entities. And you know, the question is how, to what extent are we aware of that? That they don't want to be part of a state, but they don't have currently any other solution. The classic example in the world is the Kurds, right? The Kurds, Kurdistan. The Kurds are probably the largest nation without a state. It's spread between four, between Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and, and Iran. But, you know, when I traveled in, in Central Asia, say, for example, in Kyrgyzstan, people are very aware of the fact that Uyghurs, as opposed to Kyrgyz or Kazakhs or Uzbeks, don't have their own state, right? Yeah. And the same kind of Turkic nation like those others. I mentioned. So, so it, that's, that's, it, it seems worth taking a moment. Tell me if what I'm about to say is correct or not, but imagine all of us, imagine if you were part of a people and you had no homeland. I mean, there's people that don't live in their homeland. You don't live in your homeland, but lots of people don't live in their homeland, but you have a homeland. Imagine the feeling of displacement and lack of rootedness, if you literally have no country to go to and, and maybe never, never have, or haven't for centuries. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a profound sense of feeling lost. I would imagine. It certainly is. And depends also on that distance between your own culture, this nation without homeland and the environment, the broader environment, for example, the state that occupies this, this era. And. You know, until mid 19th century, this was probably not an issue. Why? Uh, because of literacy, mm. that, that feeling, that feeling of commonality that we somehow belong to a certain group as such really started with literacy and a classic example is the, the nationalisms that uh, evolved in, in the Habsburg empire, right? Austria, Hungary, right? This is where it happened, including Ukraine, right? Ukrainian nationhood as defined with its language and with its ambitions for statehood really developed in Austria-Hungary, in the part of ethnic Ukraine uh, that was within the Austro-Hungarian state, not within Tsarist Russia, which mm -hmm. uh, really periodically tried to Russify uh, all of these different populations, not least the Ukrainians, right? So, so yes, I think as soon as there is a collective consciousness of growth, uh, that lack of homeland is extremely painful. And literacy was important. Cases in history. I mean, think Palestinians, right? Think right. Cases like that. And literacy is important, of course, because it was a way, it was a way that ideas and words and cultures and stories could spread beyond just one-to-one -one speaking, right? Yeah, very, very, you know, at an analytical level, very easily you can um, dissociate between high culture and low culture. So high culture is the one which is literate, right? Which yes. allows you to to, to function within a broader sense of belonging than just your family, your clan. So people that you know immediately. Yes. Of course, low culture, as we know, you know, throughout most of the history of, of, of mankind were, you know, peasants predominantly, and they didn't have that consciousness, right? Yes. You know, they might, you know, coming back to Ukraine say, so my, my great aunt, uh, she lived in, in, in Ukraine at the beginning of 20 century. Um, and, uh, 
she said that, you know, the, the level of nationhood was only uh, clear um, over Shabbat. So over, when, when people went to practice their creed, so yeah. the, the, you know, the Jews went to synagogue, the, the, the Ukrainians went to a tzerkov, an Orthodox, and the Poles went to a, uh, you know, Roman Catholic church. And that's where it really, that's where you saw the, those divisions. But at yeah. the rural level, on a day-to-day -day basis, people kind of interacted without the idea, okay, how far from here are, say, the, the borders of the Tsarist empire, right? Yes. And what does it mean for my homeland or like the Rome? Not at the level of law culture, which yes. she wasn't, by the way, but, but I mean, this, this was her, 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 her memoirs. Uh, so I cut you off as you were about to talk about Taiwan specifically. What is the case people make for why it is not a nation or a state? And why is yeah, it wrong? So first, first, let me address nation because it's simple and state is a little more, more complex. So nationhood of Taiwan. So I just mentioned, so there's this, this theory that if we all agree that we belong to the same group, then, you know, we are a nation, a large, large group and may have, you know, based on a couple of myths, for example, those myths that the high culture passed on, right, over time. Um, and just, just, just commonality on purpose, often, you know, then institutional development that serves this group, um, bottom up or top down, that depends on, on where you are in the world. So from this perspective, it's really interesting to look at Taiwan because its national identity has changed a couple of times in the last 150 years. So when, mm -hmm. when, when Qing Empire, um, the Manchu Empire lost the war to Japan, was the first time really the Taiwanese who had been under Qing dynasty, under the Dutch, under the Spaniards, under the Portuguese, the first time the Taiwanese actually created their own state. It was called Republic mm -hmm. of Taiwan in late 19th century. Republic of Taiwan. Um, now it didn't survive for long because the Japanese came and <laughs> grabbed it and yeah. made it part of Japan, but it shows, you know, it's probably easier on an island to have that, you know, clear understanding how far this, our entity, our unit goes, but it's important in the history of Asia, because at mm -hmm. that time there were no republics. There were only empires and kingdoms mm -hmm. and sultanates. This was the first Republic in Asia, Republic of Taiwan. So there was the first inkling of that, right? But of course, after this accident of history when Chiang Kai-shek decamped from, from China, you know, he tried to promote Chinese identity, just like the Japanese were promoting Japanese identity. So everything got, got, got mixed quite a lot. Fast forward to today, you know, over 70% of Taiwanese say that they are, not surprisingly, Taiwanese. And then you have this group says, we are Taiwanese of Chinese origin. And then there's about 5% says, hey, you know, it would be great to be part of People's Republic of China. Does that, does that, do those identifications, you may not know this, but I'm just wondering how relevant age is to how people identify who they are. Very relevant because that's specific to uh, Chinese culture. Chinese culture is patrilineal. So, uh, so you're as a son, you pray for your ancestors, you pray for your father and your, your your parents, grandparents, and so on, on the patrilinear side of this. And so, for example, every April around there, you go to a tomb sweeping uh, festival that's similar to Toussaint in, you know, Western Christian world. Um, and so uh, for many people, such as my father-in-law who was born in Guangdong, um, you know, that the, the fact that his ancestors 
were buried in mainland China was an important part of his identity. Mm-hmm. So it's identity that's, that's, that's drawn from history that has a territory. Remember, we mentioned this before. Yes. There should be history of territory. And that was so important for him. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. And now his son, my brother-in-law, when he refers to his patrilineal connection, his pedigree, then he just drives up to the hill in the military um, cemetery to visit his father's tomb in Taiwan. Mm. So the connection naturally of the younger generation is in Taiwan because it's been several generations. And of course, for the majority of people, it's always been, right? Because it's yeah. only a small minority of population that moved from China with Chiang Kai-shek. However, they uh, took, you know, the reins of power. They basically crushed the Taiwanese uprising in 1947 uh, and were very dominant economically and politically for many years through the martial law. Uh, but that one, one, one question about that. Um, I, I actually was asking about the relevance of age for a different reason. Well, it's really interesting what you said, but I was thinking perhaps age was also a factor because the younger you are, the greater access to information you've had so that you could understand the history and even control what version of history you learned or even embrace all versions of history. That's very, that's very important. And the educational system in Taiwan, it's hugely important because uh, kids who grew up at a time where there was still a martial law. So white terror, Chiang Kai-shek's yes. terror in the beginning of his son, Chiang Ching-kuo's uh, rule, they learned in the educational system a lot of things about China, not fear of historical China, you know, singing songs about Sichuan, you know, some river in Sichuan, stuff like this. So that, of course, changed in the last 30 or 40 years, but there was a whole generation who believed, you know, one day we'll go back. And so for the parents who actually came from China, it was very important. And for sometimes the direct descendants of those parents as well, because of the educational system. And then of course, you know, that information today and the educational system is, is completely different. So, so that's, you know, that's as far as the nation goes. And it's important because the Chinese, because of the indoctrination on mainland China have completely different view of that, right? They're being told, you know, all of these different lands around China should be China. That includes Taiwan, that includes Arunachal Pradesh in India, that includes Aksai Chin in India, that includes uh, even Russian, Russian part of Manjuria and yes. part of Bhutan and part of Nepal and part of the, you know, Kyrgyzstan and Southeast China Sea and some islands in Japan and some islands in Korea and blah, blah, blah. That's ours. That's importantly ours, right? So different view and of course overlapping with completely different identity you have somewhere else. So it's important. I said nation is that on the Taiwanese side, there is no commonality of nation with mm-hmm. people from PRC. They might have been maybe decades ago, but this boat has left. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's funny because when I started dealing with these issues in, in the 1990s, someone, uh, some Taiwanese said that this is, this is very weird to live in Taiwan next to this huge neighbor because it's like being in a cage closed with a 500 pound gorilla who believes he's your brother. So that's, 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 that's the feeling. So that's, that's the nation. Now let's move to state, you know, because some people say, oh, you know, Pelosi went somewhere. There's not a state. Well, so we have to really define what a state is. Um, first, let me just refer to Taiwan and then I come back to, you know, what the official definition of statehood is. So I showed you, I think two weeks ago, Taiwanese passport. Yes. Okay? 
it is a passport um, that is recognized all around the world. In fact, you don't need visas to go to Japan or European Union or US and so on. Very good passport. Uh, that's number one. Uh, if you're in Taiwan, you pay taxes to Taiwan. Of course, you have an educational system, which is Taiwanese. You have universal healthcare, jealous, universal healthcare, Taiwanese. Um, you have a government that's, you know, a president that's elected every four years and the entire system of the government is Taiwanese. I mentioned last time about the legal system, the legal system, the underpinning of the rule of law this is German brought by the Japanese, of course, Taiwanese now, but with the yeah, European yeah. roots. Um, the Taiwan has its own phone code, 886, has its own internet code, TW. It has its own central bank that issues its own currency, which looks like this. It's called NTD, New Taiwanese Dollar, with its own currency. And of course, it has its army, it has its navy, it has its air force. Show me where it is not a state. Okay, so of course, I'm not surprised by the silence. Uh, but here's what a state is or should be. So uh, this goes back to 1930s when you have this massive effort of international cooperation within the League of Nations, and there are a lot of a lot of efforts to define, you know, who could be or shouldn't be a member of the League of Nations. So, so the, the predecessor of the United Nations yes. was headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. And so there was a declaration in Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, in 1933 that defined that declaration of what a statehood is. And it actually has never been superseded by any other. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because some of these four elements of that definition relate to things that are, you know, a little groovy by now, starting with, it has to have a stable population. <laughs> Why is that? Because of course, a lot of areas around the world had a nomadic population yes. like in the 1930s, right? So not very stable. People are moving regardless of, you know, what the borders are in the middle of Sahara. So stable population, that was number one. Uh, number two, its own government. Number three, uh, its own territory over which this government exercises its control. And third and fourth, ability to maintain relations with other states. Hmm. Okay. So let's, you know, go through those four. You uh, have to, you, does it, to be a nation, to be a state, about state I'm sorry, right? to be a state, do you have to meet all four of those criteria? All four. All four. You have to meet, yes. Okay. Yeah. So in Taiwan's case, Stable population, yeah, although a lot of them are in Orange County, but <laughs> uh, uh, territory, fairly straightforward. Of course, there are yeah. a lot of outlying islands, about 100 islands, small islands um, okay. around Taiwan, some of which extremely interesting, especially on the Pacific, um, inhabited by Aboriginal groups. Um, then uh, it's government, so that's pretty obvious, and ability to maintain relations with other people. So. Right now, Taiwan has diplomatic relations with 13 countries and unofficial relations with 56 other countries. That includes all the countries, major countries of you know Europe, Canada, US, Japan, and so on. Um, so um, here we are. Basically, it is a state, yeah, and it is a nation, right? So I think it's it's important to sort of step back and find out. Look, uh, there is no way that you can claim that that is not. There's no statehood now. Some but there are people claiming it. Yeah, some people still claim that. Yes, so they claim it because they basically borrow 
the you know the the party line from 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 China and parrot this for for no of our increasing, but it is a state and it is a nation. Uh, maybe seventy years ago it wasn't a nation, but it's the nation who decides that what's this identity. It's interesting that um, Chinese ambassador to Australia who was grilled by Australian uh, journalists the other day after this saber rattling, which you described in Taiwanese the Taiwan Straits. Uh, was asked, so how come you don't pay attention to, you know, the choices of 23 or 24 million Taiwanese people? He said, it's 1.4 billion Chinese who will decide. As if Chinese people under the dictatorship could decide anything. But anyway, that's the, that's yeah. the line. So that's the statehood um, and that's the nationhood. And I think it's, it kind of dispels the, the disagreements. There's a, uh, there's a concept in U.S. real estate law, and I'm blanking on what it's called. If someone knows, put it in the chat box. But the, and, it, and it's like on the tip of my tongue. It's, it's sort of like eminent domain, but it's, it's actually the opposite of that. And what it says is, if there's a piece of land and the owner neglects it, and you take care of it for whatever this period the law says, it could be five years or seven years, if you care for that land for seven years, let's say, it, you can then make a case and actually own it legally. And it seems to me that, in, and I wish I could remember what it was called because it would make this sound like a more legitimate discussion, but it seems like the same applies here. China essentially let the nation of Taiwan develop grow and blossom. And so they lost their right to it simply because they neglected it. Is, is that applied? I, I like that. However, you know, you know, the, the origin of that particular ruling, it's our frontier experience in the United States. This is how us was born. It was, was born by people basically grabbing land little by little and you yeah. have to actually make it work. <laughs> And I think the the first early on the Eastern seaboard, the first early case of precisely that was the expansion of Pennsylvania under William Penn, right? Who, who just introduced his sort of Quaker dominated ideal colony and people were moving westward, further west and were, you know, Quaker spirit supposed to use that God-given asset. Yes. Right. And of course, you know, that was afterwards perpetuated further, further west as, as our frontier spirit here in America grew with us. Right. Um, you know, the Chinese would say, well, it has nothing to do with us because we never had yeah. a frontier. We define our frontier top down from the statehood. Right. So that's, um, that's, that's, that, that could be potentially their response. Well, one interesting thing I'll point out here, Thomas, is we're all accustomed to you just grabbing, snatching from the air parts of European history that are amazingly relevant, but seem esoteric to us. I think I'm going to speak for everybody here with how impressed we are with, now we know you can do the same thing with U.S. history. That was impressive. <laughs> to be able to take that idea and, and come up with an exact uh, example from U.S. history, that's impressive. I want to ask you one more thing, and if you can decide whether we talk about this today or save it for next week. But I know that history of the relationship between Taiwan and the UN is complicated. Why? 
Yeah. Okay. Let's tackle this. We have 15 minutes, so I hope well, we can we can go through it. And it's it's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating topic. I call it UN's original sin. So please mm-hmm. forgive me if you're not religious. Um, Republic of China. So Chiang Kai-shek's regime, which occupied Taiwan since 1945 and then relocated there in 1949, was one of the founding uh, members of the United Nations in June of 1945, okay? And so Chiang Kai-shek always believed that he represented all of China. So that includes Taiwan, where since 49 he physically was, and all of China, which was mainland China, occupied by um, Chinese Communist Party. Not immediately, there were parts of uh, the country that were still uh, resisting, not least in Yunnan that I mentioned before. It's very interesting when people tell you, you know, that the liberalization took place in the 50s. Tibet famously was invaded much later as well. Uh, And Hainan as well, poor Hainan, which is now under lockdown, which is quite quite crazy. The only place where Chinese can go on holiday this day, this year, because they cannot travel overseas, is Hainan to the beaches and they're being locked down again in their zero COVID disastrous policy. But anyway, so 1945. So at that time, global support for ROC, so Republic of China, represented by Chiang Kai-shek, um, was still in vast majority. So about 87% of the members of the UN supported ROC's um, presence at the UN. But there were also only 51 members. Right? Most mm-hmm. members were either Western nations, developed nations, or countries of Latin America, which, you know, obtained their independence in 1820s around that time, right? So there were also members of League of Nations before, before the Second World War. And so we have Security Council with five members, and that includes the Republic of China. And that support began to dwindle with the multiplication of states. And I think three weeks ago, we spoke a lot about Africa and decolonization in Africa. And of course, a lot more members started joining immediately with many of those not economically viable members becoming members of the of the UN. Um, so much so that by early 70s, there were 137 members. There's now 60 more than that, right? And so during this period, and again, we broached that three weeks ago, Soviet Union, and also PRC increasingly Malcetone were trying to um, lever their, their, their narrative, anti-colonial and anti-capitalist narrative in many of those newly independent countries. The Soviets were very active and the Chinese were increasingly active as well. Which means that many of these countries became supporters of the People's Republic of China, which was not a member, clamoring for its presence at the UN. Now, as I say, you know, there were many members, but not every country was a member. West Germany was not a member. West Germany was not a member of, of the UN. Um, South Korea was not a member of the UN. South Vietnam, a separate country with capital in Saigon, was not a member of the UN, right? So, but interestingly enough, that group of communist and pro-communist countries clamored every year, PRC, PRC, PRC has to be in, in the UN. And so that support of 87% for Taiwan dwindled to about 55% by 1966. Why am I raising 1966? 
because the reality of that don't eventually on Western countries. Some of the Western European countries also started to support PRC's um, membership, not at the cost of ROC or Taiwan's membership, but as an additional member. Hmm. You know, later in the history of UN, both Germany's East and West and both Korea's North and South eventually became members, right? So why not both China's? So in 1966, Canada, which had good uh, trade relations with Mao Zedong because they sold them a lot of wheat to, to avert those massive famines, suggested that there should be two seats at the UN, one for ROC Taiwan and one for Communist PRC. Uh, that was rejected both by Soviet Union and Communist backers of China and by ROC. Uh, there was an ambassador, his name was Wei Taoming, um, ambassador of, of Taiwan, who this beautiful speeches, very highly educated person, beautiful speeches was kind of proving, you know, this is a violent group, CCP, and they're occupying the country. They should not represent China. We represent China. We real traditional elites mm. of, of um, Chinese Republic. Um, and so both uh, Taiwan and its backers and PRC and its backers were trying to torpedo that motion to bring uh, PRC as well into, into, into the UN. And the next country who tried to do exactly the same, the same year was Italy. And Italy brought like five other members. And again, it was, it was shut down. And then a couple of years forward, then we have Nixon and Kissinger about whom we spoke two weeks ago and Kissinger you know, completely loses the plot on all the major mass murder in Eastern Pakistan, which is Bangladesh today, because he's so focused on China, right? So he's using Western Pakistan. So today's Pakistan to um, piggyback between uh, uh, Islamabad and, and Beijing and opening the dialogue with China. At some point, William Rogers, who's that notional secretary of state uh, says, you know what? We would be in favor, we United States would be in favor of um, People's Republic assuming the seat at the Security Council. Mm. So no worried about kicking out Taiwan, but just an additional seat at the Security Council. He mentioned that, of course, you know, that rocked the waves in Taiwan, which was America's ally at that time, military ally. And uh, in September 71, so it's 26th uh, session of the General Assembly, um, there are three motions that are brought. Americans could actually smell what was coming. So they brought two motions. The first one is to add PRC as a member of Security Council. And that was backed by US and Australia, another LA of Taiwan. And the second one, to use Article 18 to have qualified majority in case other members try to kick out Taiwan. So to stop it, to, to, to prevent the fact that like pro-communist countries kick out Taiwan from, from, from UN and yeah. we're in PRC anyway, as a sort of compromise, especially because U.S. started this, this dialogue with Beijing, with Mao Zedong and Chu Enlai. And, but at the same time, we have Albania and Albania is critical. Albania was under, since 1945, a communist dictatorship, uh, run by a certain Enver Hoxha. So if you're. Typing it you all, know, most famous Albanians in history, you're going to find first Mother Teresa, then long time now, nobody, and then Enver Hoxha. Maybe there's some soccer, I just haven't followed recently. Anyway, Enver Hoxha, uh, 
is this, uh, you know, very Stalinist leader who, in, you know, he, he introduces literacy to Albania. So he develops, you know, the modernist the materials part of the country, but at the same time, he bans religion. It's a Muslim country predominantly. He bans uh, private property. He bans foreign travel. And he's very, very committed to Stalinism. So when Khrushchev uh, comes with his revision, Enver Hadja supports Mao Zedong, running anti-revisionist communist communism. And he's gone even further than the Chinese, who then later during Cultural Revolution were kind of in convulsion. And Enver Hadja in Albania became those symbols of anti-revisionism to the point yeah. that to this day, a lot of extremist small communist parties are Hoja-ist parties, including the United States. I call them sofa parties. So all the three members can fit into one sofa, but you know, they, they exist. Hoja-ist communism still exists, named after, after Enver Hoja, even though he himself probably is largely forgotten in Albania today. And so Albania uh, had a motion to bring People's Republic and kick out, quote unquote, representatives of Chiang Kai-shek. And what happens during the vote? First, America is trying to push this Article 18 to prevent the Albanian motion, and it loses. And the moment it loses, uh, it goes straight to the to the Albanian motion, and the the, the countries vote, and they vote in favor um, to uh, bring People's Republic and kick out the Republic of China. There is Taiwan, and they call it the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek. Then Ambassador Cho ostentatiously leaves the General Assembly. All well, it's something you can see on, on YouTube. The problem with this resolution, 2758, is that that resolution um, is not in line with the UN Charter. The, any removal of any member from UN should comply with the so-called Article 6. What is Article 6? Article 6 refers to persistent violation of um, the UN Charter. <clears throat> you can find a number of countries that over long years or even decades have remained members of the United Nations and had persistent violations of the UN Charter. Think about Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Uh, think about Burma to this day, right? They just executed a couple of, of people the other day. So uh, it's simply not co compliant with the, with, with the UN Charter to the point that when Chen Shui-bian, so the first Taiwanese president from DPP, the Democratic Party, which is currently in power under Tsai Ing-wen, in 2007, he returned to UN asking Ban Ki-moon, who was the secretary, the Korean secretary of uh, UN, to reinstate Taiwan under Taiwan, right? Not to clamor over China because China's position is very vague in this. You know, when Taiwan says we are China, they say, no, 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 you're Taiwan. When Taiwan says we're Taiwan, say, no, 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 you're China, right? You can't figure it out. Anyway, Ban Ki-moon said that no, he cannot, of course, under pressure from China, that he cannot let Taiwan in because Taiwan is part of China. Importantly, he didn't say it's part of People's Republic of China. And it's critical to make this distinction because of those for these historical reasons, that nonsense about Taiwan being part of China is still repeated. De facto, of course, it's not the case, but legally, from certain viewpoints, it can be. So Ban Ki-moon was not entirely incorrect in his statement, but he was incorrect in his decision. Anyway, with the current um, balance of votes, 
within the United Nations, heavily, heavily dominated by PRC interest and Russia's interest, it's very unlikely that Taiwan would be um, would be incorporated. And there are several other countries. You know, Kosovo is not a member. Western Sahara is not a member. Somaliland is not a member. I remember in my young years as a student, I worked at UN, um, just taking tours around around the you know historic uh, rooms. Not here in New York, but in Geneva. It's a very beautiful, um, you know building very large, uh, built in 1930s with some of, you know, Rivera's uh, murals and so on, very much in the kind of modernist style. And so I had this text, which was very boring text, you know, about all the organizations. So when I like quizzing my, uh, my different groups in different languages and asking them, what do you know, what do you not know? And I remember standing in front of this map of the UN, I always ask him, so which countries are not members of the, of, of the UN? Uh, and, you know, Geneva's in Switzerland and Switzerland was not a member of the UN. And so sometimes people guessed, sometimes people didn't guess, you know, Switzerland and Taiwan, right? Right. Until I heard that it was illegal to mention the term Taiwan. It's illegal to bring that green Taiwanese passport into the grounds of the UN. This is how far it's gone. So, you know, there are some other things that I added to this text that were illegal, apparently, not least concerning the... Israeli-Palestine uh, story, but I only learned about it when I passed it on to a friend of mine, <laughs> like, and, and he got a flag from from the director. How dare you talk about this? Stick to the script. So that's a problem with you and very heavily process oriented. The real thing, but just you know, the number of countries that don't comply with the main. Um, tenets of the UN, so which is UN Charter, and not least 1948 um, uh, Declaration of, of Human Rights. And the Declaration of Human Rights that brings us back to Russia, I'll just read for you something I found the other day, Article Article 2. And the Declaration says, everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this Declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status, that's Xinjiang, and all human beings are born free of equal dignity and rights that are endowed with reason and conscience should act towards one another in spirit of brotherhood. That's Ukraine. So, you know, we have members who uh, run this organization uh, and, you know, someone that I really don't agree politically usually with, um, but who many years ago clamored for disbanding this organization was John Bolton. Uh, I don't know whether he had very deep understanding of how it functions, but the situation since then, and this was early 2000s, has only deteriorated. It seems to me, and I know we're going to wrap this up, but it seems to me that Taiwan can never be a member of the UN unless a huge shift in attitude about China occurs, or the members of the UN, the majority of the members, or however many need to vote, are willing to confront China. It, it, so that the, the vote is actually the end result, not the beginning of the process. It's very true. But you know, there's one thing that we learn from history to quote Ludwig von Mises the things that have never happened before do occur. 
so um, just to finish with a quote, I read yesterday a Bloomberg article from, you know, a Chinese journalist who happens to be in the region. And her articles are good. It's about, you know, trade and economics in the market situation. But she's usually rather pro-Chinese. What she says about how, how the Hong Kong airport looks right now. Remember Hong Kong airport, the massive hub yeah. in East Asia, you know, bustling, huge, luckily enough with those rolling um, carpets that allow you to get fairly quickly from one place to another, a good functional airport. She said it's empty. Mm. She says that it feels when you are on China's periphery right now, that is moving towards the same era as the end of the Qing dynasty. Everything is so eerily quiet. She says there's more international flights to Saigon right now, Ho Chi Minh City, than there are to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be too conceited. I don't know what the future is, but let's not underestimate the randomness of the universe. Doesn't seem very random to me. But maybe yeah, that's contingency, contingency is something you always have to factor in when you look at history and trying to draw some lessons. Yeah. Let's leave it there.